Welcome to Charles Dickens' A Brain on Fire, a series that digs deep into the life and works of one of the greatest novelists of all time. Hi everyone, I'm thrilled to welcome back to the podcast the inimitable Celeste Cannon. If you've not heard her episode on Dickens, Bergson and time travel, I urge you to scroll back nine episodes and listen to it right now, for two reasons. This current episode will make a lot more sense if you do that, and because it is simply one of the most fascinating and in-depth interviews I've ever had the pleasure to be part of on this series. Ah, you appear to still be here, so I'll press on. In the original Back to the Future movie, Marty McFly travels back 30 years from 1985 to 1955 and begins to, inadvertently at first, rewrite the past in one key moment playing lead guitar on stage at the Enchantment Under the Sea dance. Then, in Back to the Future 2, Marty travels back to the same high school dance, and this time clambers high up among the theatre flies and looks down at himself playing the guitar on the stage below. Both these interlocking journeys back in time are examples of what might be called a filmic palimpsest, where something set down in the past is then rewritten at a future date, rewriting or adding to the past. When I last spoke to Celeste, appropriately around the time of the summer solstice, I think we both felt that there were more sections to develop from our original discussion, in particular Bergson's ideas on the superficial self and the mechanical man, and how not only external man-made systems can restrict us and squash our true natures, but also internal, rigid systems of thought in the form of dogmas that can prevent meaningful interactions with the world around us. Focusing on the signalman, bleak house, hard times, the chimes, and Master Humphrey's clock, it's time to invite Celeste back into the room for our palimpsest. Celeste, hello and welcome back to Charles Dickens' A Brain on Fire. It's so great to see you again. Hey Dominic, it's great to be back. So, you're here um, because you've gone further into some more stories relating to Henry Bergson. So for listeners that haven't heard Celeste's amazing episode on Dickens, Bergson and time travel, you need to roll back and listen to that. But uh, yes, could you let us know then what what other discoveries have you made since we spoke during the summer solstice last year? Yeah, I was thinking about a few uh, other examples, you know, that connect Dickens and Bergson really well. Um... And also how they differ, you know, so the differences between them and that tension as well between them, I think is really interesting. Um, and I thought about the signalman, which is obviously a crucial connection there between that mechanical self, uh, the social or superficial self that Bergson talks about. And obviously Dickens's own uh, example here of that tension <clears throat> between maybe the movement of the self that is subjective and the spiritual and this, the life of the mind versus the life of matter and maybe this mechanical rigidity that obviously we see there through the railway and the signals and the man that has become the signal uh, himself uh, and those ideas. So I think that tension there is really interesting between the two. Yeah, so in terms of, is it to do, like you said, the mechanical man, yeah. But obviously the signalman down in the cutting has his signals with his flag and everything and, and the telegraphic Im- instruments as well on a kind of loop. 
but also you have the narrator being forced into doing signaling that he's totally unaware of and it's kind of subliminal that there's this kind of supernatural technology almost out there that's controlling them yeah definitely and that sense of whether we are part of this mechanism as well as individuals and as thinking minds and that tension there between something that's part of a system or part of this um maybe uncontrollable unstoppable mechanism versus uh free will and you know our own mind and how we decide uh, what to do as well so i think there's always that tension in dickens and in bergson that really connects them um in many ways yeah are there points of separation then in the signalman from where dickens strays away from bergson because they're both believers in free will well dickens some of the time i always think most of the time actually but not so in in this story yeah and i think it's also that tension between the the world we live in and the world that's within <laughs> Yeah. And so, yeah, so definitely there is a tension and something that differentiates them in the sense that, well, actually, does it differentiate them? Because that's the question here with uh, Bergson. He says that obviously our inner life and our subjective life is really important and is that really the core of our experience. But at the same time, we do need that uh, external world and those mechanisms and that social world because we are part of that world so there is that interaction between the two and i think so in a way it's something that seems to um differentiate them but really i think they're both saying the same thing in the end that dickens is also saying uh we are a part of a world and we are part of these social uh you know institutions and mechanisms and things that we can't really extract ourselves from uh, that are inevitably part of ourselves as well. So maybe there's, yeah, a double uh, movement there between the two. Yes, it's sort of hearing you say that makes me think that these systems sometimes carry us along amazingly and other times they suck us under and run over us, um, yeah. drag us down. There was something, and I had said to myself before we logged on for this chat that I wasn't going to pile in with ideas, but <laughs> I have one thought on the signalman, and this was listening to... Um, the Uncanny podcast that Danny Robbins wanted, the idea of time slips and the idea that you could see someone in a different time. Well, you become two ghosts. So you're in your own time and you see someone from another time. For both of you, you're two ghosts seeing each other across time and you're both scared of each other. And I had this idea since hearing that, that that could be something about the signalman as well, that they're both frightened of each other because they're out and out of sync in a different time place. And I think it's that metaphysical, you know, that metaphysical aspect of that's really how I see them connect. Uh, the fact that Dickens really is interested in the the haunting and the unfamiliarity of the railway and technology and mechanism in that way that isn't that doesn't feel uh, completely in sync with our mind and our and the spiritual and the. So I think yeah, it's that tension between the two that metaphysical aspect of our existence that really connects them here <laughs> yes and the railway the the chronological force of mm. railway time pushes yeah. us away from duration i'm glad mm. i was the first person to put that in but i didn't say durée, did i there you go durée is much more elegant in the french yes yeah sounds a bit lumpy doesn't it in english duration. <laughs> um so celeste moving on tell us about mrs jellaby and mrs pardigal what you're digging out from them 
Oh, yeah, in Bleak House. I just always thought about that chapter, uh, telescopic philanthropy, and that whole idea of the social performance, you know, uh, the superficial self in relation to Bergson here, and that sense of, when you look at the description of them, it's very similar to Scrooge or all these rigid characters that are um, performing or are part of this social, superficial world uh, that's very rigid and, in a sense, that goes against the movement and the flow of Jure and the subjective in that way. So here, obviously, <laughs> Mrs. Jolibi, um, who's so concerned with uh, trying to be the perfect philanthropist and thinking about people far away in Africa, but then uh, who, paradoxically, isn't really looking after her children or her house uh, in mm. her own space. Uh, and Mrs. Particle is a different type of the similar sense of that superficial, performative uh, character. And she's... I think she's worse, actually, isn't yeah. she? Yeah, she's, she's worse, worse, isn't she? Yeah, yeah, yeah because Mrs. Jellyby, we have that scene with uh, Esther where... She really falls apart and you can really see her fragility and you maybe feel more empathy for that aspect of Mrs. Joby. But then Mrs. Prodigal, you don't really get a sense of her uh, in her life. You just see her performing this whole really violent and really rigid mechanical. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the, the extremist example, isn't it, when she goes to those poor cottages, doesn't she? Yeah, the bricklayer. The bricklayers. And she sits down and they're all sort of quietly having, they, they have such a difficult existence already. A bloody pardigal shows up yeah. with a Bible and starts reading the Bible to them. And in that moment of her doing that Bible reading, a baby dies. And she doesn't engage at all with what's just happened, you know, snaps the book shut, off she goes. And you think, wow. And she believes that obviously she's spreading goodness and gospels and being a good Christian and setting in an example and yet not doing anything really practical to help those those people. So that's the, the extremist form of, of the delusion of the, of the self, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and she's described as just talking about what she's doing all the time. Yeah. And the narrator just explicitly says there are two different sides. I think it's... Um, I think it's through the voice of Esther, obviously, that we hear this uh, kind of difference between the two philanthropists. Uh, philanthropists, um, And, you know, the ones who just talk about what they do, but don't do anything. And then the ones who do a lot, but don't talk about it. Yes. So that really is that social, performative, superficial aspect there. That's really interesting. Yeah, that is. Although there's an interesting twist in the writing, which I remember, I think, from because I've read Bleak House about a year ago last, I think. Yeah. Um, and I think it's Mrs. Jellyby. After her daughter Caddy is married, I think it's towards the end of the book, there's some kind of line about how she then becomes active in trying to get women in Parliament. And suddenly... And I don't know what Dickens thinks of that. I'm sure, I don't know. But it, to us reading that, you think, well, that's actually a good cause to get yeah. behind, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That seems like a, a change in her. Maybe. In a positive way. <laughs> Maybe, but yes, Maybe, it's such yeah. a fantastic chapter, isn't it? Telescopic philanthropy. Because I, when I first read Bleak House about 10 years ago, I actually remembered the title of that chapter so powerfully yeah, yeah. from that. And and it makes total sense. You, the obsession and, and her enlarging her sphere so wide to cover a different continent. But like, <laughs> as you said, her children are running around in rags. So what I've learned so far from talking halfway through this episode with you, Celeste, is that this is the aspect of Bergson's philosophy to do with the self, the superficial self, the social self. Is that right? What What is that in French again? Yeah. Um, I think in French he calls it le moi superficiel. 
So it's the same word, yeah. Uh, or the social kind of requirements that we have to go towards action and other other people, which is essential. And I think, you know, Dickens also really talks about the external world being so important. Uh, and that's what he's trying to alert his readers to the reality of the real world. So it's not just that the inner world is important, but it's both and we need both. But obviously extremes yeah. are not great. <laughs> so your next choice I think is from the chimes, which is great because Christmas is around the corner. Tell us, tell us about this one. I think uh, just in general with uh, the politicians in Dickens, obviously all these characters that are again very superficial and that are performative, and yeah, again a lot of words and not a lot of substance. Let's say. Um, so, and I think can I just, I'm going to cut in just there, yeah, because obviously this is audio, so no one gets to see your expression <laughs> on your face when you say that. But when you mentioned politicians, there was this weary expression that passed across your face i don't know who you might be thinking of uh I mean, especially whilst you're many. in the uk <laughs> yeah or oh, in other countries as well and in other ones yeah. unfortunately yeah. yeah yeah no but i think throughout even just beyond all the characters that are like that um are very specifically criticized aren't they as yeah performative and using words in ways that are very well void of any significance empty words and i think that tension again with people that you know act and don't talk about it uh, rather than talking about things a lot and not really meaning anything uh, significant but but in our lives it would be so much better if um it was easy if they weren't so emotive so some of these slogans that go thrown out they really stir up emotions mm-hmm. for people don't they even though yeah. they're absolutely meaningless yeah manipulative in that yeah, way exactly. but it'd be so much easier if words that mean nothing actually meant nothing to people but is it is it Filer and Alderman Cute? Who yeah. is it in the chimes that you're thinking of? Yeah, and the good old times and the facts yeah. and figures. Yeah. yeah. The sleek-coated gentleman, yeah. Yeah, and that relates to hard times as well. The facts and figures, the same words that are used for Mr. Greg Ryan. Uh, so I thought that was interesting how, yeah, it's just always there, that aspect of the mathematical or mechanical way of seeing society and seeing people and individual lives versus the yeah the real experience of living people and their emotional subjective experience so i think that's always there in so many different examples but those facts and figures obviously uh, ring a bell and they really stay when you hear those words you just really it resonates as something that's so yeah emotionless and rigid the utilitarian character yeah. Filer, who tells mm-hmm. Trotty that he's basically starving a garrison of several hundred yeah. by just having sharing some tripe mm-hmm. with his daughter. Yeah, the guilt that he's trying to instill. Yeah. yeah, and of course, grad grind in hard times, like you mm. said as well. Yeah, yeah, completely shutting down his children's imagination or inner world. Yeah, that's really interesting. Louise's character, and I think at one point they are literally described as parts of a machine. Um, I can't remember now exactly how, but he literally describes Louisa and Tom, uh, is it or Thomas, uh, as parts of a machine when he sees them in the distance. Um, so that, that, that description that Dickens gives there is really interesting. That, yeah, mechanism rather than imagination. Yeah, there's a quote, there's a quote from Hard Times as well, which I find incredibly powerful. And I cannot remember where it comes in and exactly what it is, but it's, Dickens talking about Gradgrind Senior, uh, Tom Gradgrind Senior, saying, if only he'd made a mistake in his calculations some years ago, he would understand everything much better. You know, he'd, he'd, the character had soaked up 
correctness, yeah, mathematical exactitude, exact, is, yeah, you know, and actually, it he came up with the wrong answer when it came to raising his children, and it leads to total disaster for for the family, doesn't it? Actually, yeah. Yeah, that sense. Yeah, that sense that we're trying to trying to find a specific definition or exactitude, like you're saying, uh, is inevitably flawed. That you can't find something that's so rigid and mechanical that things are more complex and more complicated than that. I think there's that. Yeah, idea definitely. Winding forward then to Master Humphrey's clock. Now I've met Master Humphrey. I suddenly remembered. I didn't think I had, but of course he's the narrator at the start of the old curiosity shop. And then he's then he's shoved away. Yeah. It gets rid of him. Then he disappears. Yeah. But but a lot of listeners actually, even though they're avid Dickensians, I bet some of the listeners haven't read Master Humphrey's Clock. Um, so please uh, enlighten us. I include myself amongst them as well, by the way. <laughs> Apart from the Christmas episode where he meets the Deaf Man, which is amazing. Um, tell tell us about him and what what. Yeah. I was just fascinated by how there are many echoes in his. In the description of Master Humphrey and his clock and his relationship to memory and time and subjectivity that really resonate with the haunted man, uh, and really in a lot of detail. Uh, I have some passages here, but yeah, again, um, I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's quite long, but there's a fascinating passage that really echoes with the haunted man, um, where he's talking about his memories coming back at that specific time, uh, that quiet hour. Um, and he talks about ghosts and actually it relates to the signalman in a sense of trying to understand how we could and why we are attracted to believing in ghosts and spirits. And he links that with memory. He says the popular faith in ghosts has a remarkable affinity with the whole current of our thoughts at such an hour as this and seems to be their necessary and natural consequence. For who can wonder that man should feel a vague belief in tales of disembodied spirits wandering through those places which they once dearly affected, when he himself, scarcely less separated from his old world than they, is forever lingering upon past emotions and begone times, and hovering, the ghost of his former self, about the places and people that warmed his heart of old. And it goes on. And it's just when I was reading that, I was... I was shocked that I hadn't read it before uh, and just, you know, uh, thought about this in relation to The Haunted Man because it's such a, he's basically saying that we, why wouldn't we believe in ghosts because they haunt uh, the places that they used to haunt just in the same way as we haunt our memories and our, the memories haunt us in the same way. Uh, and that, I just thought that was fascinating and he just goes on and on and he talks about extinguished fires, um, revisiting himself uh, at this quiet hour, the house where he was born, the rooms he used to tread uh, and all these scenes in the same way Scrooge or the haunted man describes. Uh, so yeah, I just thought that was really interesting and then relating that to Bergson because he literally describes uh, himself haunting his memories himself and Bergson talks about the fact that memories and uh, the past is just as real um, and they are just as real to us as rooms that we can't see right now but are there in our memories and so that sense of yeah the past really being completely intertwined with the present and the memories being there with us constantly like ghosts um, I just thought it was really interesting. Yeah there's that idea of the almost 
solid quality of a memory yeah. of the yeah. past that it disappears from view because we're on our conveyor belt only able to travel forward yeah. in time yeah so it recedes behind us but it's it still it still exists just because yeah. you know we it doesn't stop existing because we're not there and we can't see it mm-hmm. just like you objects bergson describes it as just as objects that we cannot see right now that we cannot perceive but they exist just because we can't see them doesn't mean they can't exist so that's that same idea which is really well, yeah <laughs> And of course, with the haunted man, as we said before, you know that the lack of memory of, especially sorrowful memories, leaves a blank in the universe, doesn't it? Yeah. And your own ability to empathise and and be your true self. Yeah, they are all a part of yeah who we are and our importance. Yeah, but he is strange because uh, Master Humphrey, he's very he's described as this lonely, solitary figure. Just like, you know, when we encounter Scrooge or Redlaw at the beginning. Um, and here you can see, I think he's described specifically as having this connection with his thoughts and his memories even more because he is lonely, which obviously makes sense because he's in a way detached from the external social world. Um, so again, there's that reinforced idea that even though this connection to our subjective memories and thoughts is really important. Um, we do also need a balance and that connection to the social external world. Yeah. So I think, yeah, that again is really emphasized here too. Yeah, on that, that's interesting. As you're saying that um, because, you know, our social face and and when we go out to a party or something and see some friends, even though there are friends, you might not feel like doing that that evening. You may not want to go out, but the act of going out and 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 putting on a little bit of a social mask then brings you back to yourself as you settle into the the party. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, and it's all a part of who we are. Yeah. Those systems, those societal Mm. pressures, they can go either way, can't they? I hadn't really thought of that before because in our conversations, I've always been thinking, of course, yeah, the pressure of making a train on time or something, we we, we become the mechanical man. We become away from our true selves. I think it's extremes, and Bergson really says that. And I think that Dickens would also see that, you know, the need for that balance between the two and that that both are essential and both are really important. (laughs) But, yeah, it's definitely uh, because when you see um, Master Humphrey or Scrooge or Redlaw, yeah, you think that, okay, they really need to reconnect with their inner life and the the social world is just this restriction uh, on the self but really it is uh, that constant interaction between the two I think and that movement uh, between the yeah. two um, that makes us who we are so there's that idea of movement I think that's essential to Bergson's uh, durée but also I think in Dickens uh, that really resonates yes that that reminds me again of what you're saying from Bergson's philosophy that it is we're moving towards yeah. action. It's yeah, we need active, to move towards the yeah, future. Yeah, it's an active, it's not a sort of a, a zoning out kind of philosophy where you lie on the floor yeah. and don't do anything. Exactly. It's active. It's yeah. active, yeah. Yeah, and that's how I think dif- uh, Dickens and Bergson differ from you know, previous philosophies of time that were really uh, dominating the 19th century uh, and before that, associationism and empiricism, that idea of a kind of passive, um, you know, accumulation of uh, experiences that are just imposed on us and that we just assimilate. But it's more, for Bergson, it's more of an active, yeah, like you say, uh, recreation constantly of ourself 
through the past, uh, recreating ourselves constantly with the past and moving on into the future in action. So I think that is really what makes uh, Dickens and Bergson's idea of time different and which the connection makes really interesting. Oh, wonderful. I have a parting question for you. As Mm. you're on your way home back to France for Christmas, will you be having a 12th cake? Ah. Um, because that's a that's a tradition isn't it that that mm-hmm. goes that's an old english one as well but mm-hmm. in france it carries on doesn't it i think you still have that a lot more uh yeah so we call we have that january in january i think uh, okay yeah and uh, we have the galette des rois which is like the the three kings the three majors um cake yeah where we have uh, a piece of that in january <laughs> great yeah. well have a wonderful christmas and um, I'm sure our paths will cross again in the future. Yeah. Definitely. Or the past. Given the, future the nat- and the past. The future time. and the past. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Well, have a lovely holiday as well. And thank you so much for everything. Thank you for listening to Charles Dickens' A Brain on Fire. If you're enjoying these episodes and would like to make a small donation towards the costs of producing them, please follow the link at the bottom of the description and you can make a donation there. Every coffee you buy makes a huge difference. Thank you ever so much, and see you next time.